Welcome to Connections Podcast on Healthy Gambling and Gaming. I'm co-host Tana Russell, Assistant Director with the Evergreen Council on Problem Gambling. And I'm co-host Julie Hines, Executive Director with the Oregon Council on Problem Gambling. We're full of connections, health, and hope. Our goal is to provide powerful and empowering podcasts that fit into your busy lives, making the most of timely information and fun conversations. So anyway, Julie is much more organized than me by having her questions like planned and written out for this. Um, Well, I don't know about organized, but just, you know, I've been thinking about this topic and it's, it's one that's really, it's one that needs more attention. And, you know, the fact, Dave, that you have your podcast Mm -hmm. fall in a podcast for service members and veterans Mm-hmm. And you've been doing this podcast for how long now? Geez, it's probably about nine months. Okay. Um, I've only I've only got six episodes out. They've been kind of sporadic, but you know, I started it last summer. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm a 11 year vet, Army vet. Um, actually, got into my 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 addiction started when I was in the Army. Um, it was actually started when I was in Korea in 2001. I, I remember hearing your story, Dave. And one of the things that you had talked about, and I remember we t- when you were in, in Washington, D.C. a couple of years with NCBG Advocacy Day, really had to do with those um, outside the continental United States, the bases and the machines, the slot machines. A lot of people don't know that we have like over 2,000 slot machines. It's 60 bases that make over $100 million a year. Uh, and that that's all by our military. So, and, and that's that's how you got started, right? It is, yeah, I actually hit the ground in Korea. Uh, again, it was right after 9-11, uh, under a lot of stress um, for different reasons that were ha- things that were happening at the time and got into the country, was put up on the base in Yongsan, which is in Seoul, their main kind of main army facility there, got put into the hotel there on the base, wandering around the hotel. And I found a casino style slot room, which I had no idea existed on these bases because they don't on military installations in the States. They're not allowed on military installations in the States. No. But they are allowed. Correct. It's a morale, welfare and recreation function. Um, and they do it because you are overseas. And in a lot of cases, you're separated from family. So it's just an extra thing, I guess, that they add in to provide entertainment for the troops while you're over there. You know, the, the problem is, if you're somebody like me, you know, I took out money that first night there and I, I made the biggest mistake a budding compulsive gambler can make. I, I won, mm-hmm. you know, my first night there. And I can, I can clearly remember just feeling that stress melt away when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I, I, even as I'm sitting here talking about it, I can remember that feeling of just everything just went, ah, oh, you know, like everything's okay. And, and it didn't. And did you so, get that sense every time you, you, you stepped in to that no. little spot? No. Um, I, I spent a lot of time trying to recreate that feeling, mm-hmm. which I never really was. But I will say more often than not, I felt the sense of escape when I did go into the room it developed over time. It didn't happen right away. 
you know, I would say probably six months into my, by the time I was six months into my tour in Korea, I was pretty well entrenched. I was, I was being drawn to that room at times that I probably shouldn't have been going to that room. Mm -hmm. So where I was only going maybe on a Saturday night, just for something to do. Now I was going Friday night, Saturday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, you know, and it, and it just kept increasing over the course of that year to the point where I would break away from work in the middle of my day and say, I have a meeting and I would go over to the slot room. Um, and you could do that because you were a commanding officer. I was a non-commissioned officer in charge. So yeah, okay. I was enlisted, but I, I was at the top in my, for the, for my, uh, for my squad, I was basically their squad leader. I was the guy in charge. So mm -hmm. yeah, I had the ability to say, yes, I'm going to a meeting, you know, and, and nobody really questioned me, even, even, you know, the officer that I had there with me never really questioned what I was doing. So did I they, did they not notice like that you were more missing? Did they not ask questions? Nobody ever asked any questions. Uh, when they started to ask questions was when it got so bad that I started to steal from my own unit. Mm. Um, that's when people started asking questions and I answered those questions before anybody could really ask them. Um, you know, I very quickly owned up to it because I, you know, I, a lot of shame and guilt went along with it. I had no idea at that time how I had gotten to that point. I'm like, how did it become this? It sneaks you know? up on you. Yeah. 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 And, and I borrowed from my subordinates, which, you know, if you know people in the military will tell you that is one of the biggest mm -hmm. no-nos. You don't do that. Yeah. You know, you are the leader. You are the person who is supposed to have people ready for those times that we don't want to be ready for, but we need to be ready for. And when you're borrowing money from the people that you're leading, you compromise that, you know, you compromise mm -hmm. that readiness. Um, I knew I was doing it. I knew it was happening. And yet at the same time, it's just, I, I was so compelled to keep going back. I, I couldn't stop. Uh, what, what happened when you, because you said you fessed up, which is often not the case. It's most often not the case. It's like more likely that someone gets caught and then they mm -hmm. try to lie their way out of it. In your case, mm -hmm. you admitted it. What yes. was the response? I, <laughs> very strange. Um, I did lose rank. Um, I got disciplined for it, which I should have. It was the right thing to do. But yet at the same time, I had an evaluation done where I got very good marks on that evaluation, which was after they found out what went on, because at the same time, and, and I always call this the Jekyll and Hyde disease, because while all this was going on, I had also created a training plan for our field exercises that was being adopted by the entire peninsula for my unit. Um, you know, I was, I was, I had our squad performing you know, at top level. So there was, there, there was so much good going on at the same time. There was all this stuff going on behind the scenes that nobody knew about until I came out with it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a very strange time because I, it, it all happened near the end of my tour, near the end of my time in Korea. So I finished my time in Korea. I, I lost rank, but at the same time, when all of this went down and every, all the questioning was happening, the disciplinary part of it was fairly easy. They figured that, that out fairly easily. What they couldn't figure out was what the heck to do with me. Um, I had a gambling problem, you know, but nobody knew what to do with that. They, they know what to do with drugs. They know what to do with alcohol. All of that is pretty standardized in the military and all the branches of the military. But when it comes to gambling specifically, they scratch their head. Um, 
you know, and they put you under a general mental health category, or they put you in with somebody who deals specifically with drugs and alcohol, they don't have a track for it. There's no guidance for it. So you're just, and, and at the time, at least when I was in the military, they were the first ones to admit it. They're like, we know you have a problem. We just don't know what to do, mm-hmm. you know? So we're going to do disciplinary action because that's what the, the Uniform Code of Military Justice requires us to do. But we don't want to get too harsh with it because you did a lot of good things. And we know that this is something that's going on with you and it's a mental health issue. You know, so even with the disciplinary action, even with the action they took against me, there was some unsure as to exactly how to go about it, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it was I a think- strange time. It was very strange. Yeah, I, I think that problem happens in a lot of fields, right? Which is, well, we don't know anything about gambling, so we don't know what to do with it, right? Yeah. And who we do have is mental health or addiction specialists. Right. The idea is the right. same, which is get that person to some help, but you've got to have the person who's specially trained in it to right. be available to help that person. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even understand what was going on with me. Mm-hmm. I, I needed somebody in front of me who understood what I was going through so they could walk me through what it was so I could better understand it and, and start to get some grips on it. The fact is, I didn't even know what I didn't know. I didn't even know what's going on. Why is this happening? You know, and what do I do? You know, mm-hmm. and when nobody can tell me that it makes it even more desperate and confusing, like nobody can ever understand it. Mm-hmm. So what happened when you, when you came back stateside, what went on with you there with your gambling behavior? I got back to the States. I moved on to my next duty assignment. And for almost for about eight months, I was there by myself because my first wife at the time and my kids stayed at the, in the area where we were stationed before I went to Korea so they could finish their school year there. So I went down and stayed down there by myself. That was an extremely unhealthy move for me. Um, because I just rolled right back into the gambling basically. Um, Mm -hmm. and it continued for the next couple of years, progressively again, getting worse up until the point when, when I got reassigned to my next assignment, my ex didn't go with me because we had separated at that point. It had gotten so bad. I had already had, basically I'd had my first kind of suicide attempt. I took a lot of medications because I just, I didn't know what to do. I had no clue what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I took a bunch of medications, I guess, as a cry for help, but that didn't really do anything. They got me through that medication period. They got me back to work and then they sent me on to my next duty assignment um, where it, it, it got even, it got worse and worse. It just, it didn't get better until the point where, again, I stole from my unit. Um, And this time I had another suicide attempt where I ended up in a basically a lockdown or an acute psych facility for about two weeks. Mm -hmm. During those two weeks, my commander actually came into the psych facility and went into the conference room in the psych facility in order to issue me my military justice this time and lose rank. And this time they said, we're going to let you out of the military. We're going to do what's called chaptering you out of the military. Mm -hmm. But they did it under very generous conditions. Again, they didn't know what to do. So they gave me a discharge that allowed me to get full benefits from the VA. I I Mm -hmm. stole, I stole from my unit. I lied to people. I used my, and you know, this is something that could have gotten me into Fort Leavenworth truthfully, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I didn't steal hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, of equipment. It was not a large sum of money, but the point is they still could have been much more harsh than what they were. But because A, I had an otherwise stellar record and B, they really didn't understand what I was going through. They again decided to be lenient. And instead of getting me the treatment that I needed, they said, we are going to let you out of the army because you need help. That's basically what they did. They mm-hmm. said, we're, we're releasing you. We're letting you go. Go figure out what's going on. And they didn't send you anywhere. They just are like, okay, goodbye. Yeah, no, I didn't go to any facility. I it was, they did have me see a psychologist. I was on a Navy base at the time. So they did have me see a Navy psychologist. And again, you could see (laughs) kind of the deer in the headlights look with, you know, Mm -hmm. this is a trained PhD level psychologist who, who again was like, I'm not sure what to do. You know, and, and I don't know that she used those exact words, but you could just tell, you know, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm like, guide me, tell me what's going on. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what's happening to me so I can start to fix it. And, and they just couldn't. So the and military I, said, we're going to let you go. I can't imagine what that must have felt like as a person who is already, I, I'm guessing, feeling pretty lousy, right? Self-esteem at a, probably an all-time low. Finally, in front of a helping professional, mm-hmm. supposed to be, right? Who, yeah. who, who can help in, in other things in their area of expertise. And then is basically feeling like, oh, I'm finally in front of someone who might be able to help me and they don't know what to do, <laughs> right? That, like, that's what it felt like. I mean, you know, oh. I, I, I couldn't go back and tell you exactly what the conversation was. It was a lot of years ago, mm-hmm. but- I can tell you that the way I felt was that this person didn't understand what was going on with me. That's how I felt. I felt like I'm sitting here wasting my time talking to this person because they have no clue what I'm talking about. Wow. Um, so I, we're going to get to your, your, your recovery journey here, mm-hmm. but before we do, while we're on this topic, what is your perception right now, Dave, of the preparation of uh, those who do provide mental health and behavioral health services in, in for service members now with problem gambling? It's improving, in my opinion. What I see is it's improving, and I hear that too. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can speak from the veteran side and tell you that I'm starting to see more and more people become trained and educated on gambling within the regional VA facilities. Um, the one I go to specifically has a gambling trained person in it that I deal with. That's actually very good. Um, I don't remember seeing that years ago, but I'm seeing more of it now mm-hmm. from what I hear. And I don't hear tons, but from what I hear still on the DOD side, on the active duty side, other than putting a screening question in to say, have you ever had a gambling problem? I don't think there's been a ton of progress. Um, at least that's what I'm hearing. Again, I, I can't speak intelligently about it because I'm not involved in that process. But every indication that I have about new vets coming out and you know people that are struggling with it is they, again, same thing. They just didn't know what to do with me. So there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do yet. There's a, it, it does sound like there's a lot of, a lot of work to do. I. I'm kind of stuck on something you said at the beginning, you know, which, which was that the, the slot machines aren't allowed on U.S. bases, but are overseas. And you said the idea might be that they're 
separated from their families and such. So let's give them something to do. And in my mind, because my background is as a counselor, right? In my mind, it's like exclamation points going off in my head. Why would you do that? Right? Because that's, that's where some education needs to happen, right? It's like, oh, you're, you're having some really negative emotions. Here's a 12 pack of beer to cope with it. Right. Or here's, here's a pipe. Here's a needle. You know, it's like, that's not, we don't want to encourage addictive behaviors as a way of coping with negative emotions. Instead, you want to encourage, let's give them some sports equipment and let's get a counselor or therapist that's trained in mental health and substance use and gambling, et cetera, on campus, on base, overseas with the guys, right? Like, let's give them healthy coping skills and a counselor to deal with the emotional, you know, repercussions of what they're going through. Let's not hand them an addictive behavior with no way of being able to deal with it when it, when the addictive behavior becomes an addiction. Yeah. And I'm, I'll take it a step further in that, that group of people that you're talking about that are put overseas into that situation are trained from day one, how to compartmentalize emotion. So we're trained to put it aside, put it aside, mission first, mission first. So we're taught to tuck away emotion. We're taught you don't, you know, there's no crying in military. That's not, doesn't happen. We have to focus on the mission, put it away, get the work done. So now you're taking a population that's already learned how to compartmentalize. And now you're putting them into that situation where they're away from their family and they're under stress. And, and now you're putting this, you know, tease in front of them. You know, it's funny, and I don't want to divert too far, but when I was in Korea, I can remember when I first got, when I first turned myself in, they sent me to see a chaplain on the base and the chaplain, after I told the chaplain what was going on, he said, you know, it sounds like you need something else to do. Why don't you come to bingo night? Oh, wow. (laughs) I kid you not. That happened. I kid you not. As sure as I'm sitting here, that happened. So... My yeah, skipped a beat. I think. Mm. Mm. I didn't know. Oh. I, I didn't know. Yeah, so you, you know what I did? No, I went to bingo went. night. Yeah. I went yeah. to bingo night. Yeah. Again, so. it's like, oh, you have a problem with tequila. Here's a beer. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good analogy. So when you what? So when you went to this PhD level person who was completely deer in the headlights, you 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 went away from that. What? What happened next as far as your, your journey? I was put out of the military. I'd already separated from my ex at that point. I drove back home to my home state of Pennsylvania and things didn't get better. Over the next few years, I went through several jobs. Um, I would literally quit a job because I had to work too many hours and couldn't go to the casino. Um, I, I can very clearly remember a day where I went to a casino on a Friday didn't know how long I was there, walked out and realized it was 36 hours later when I walked out. Mm. Um, At that point, went into a suicidal mode, took a whole lot of pills, realized that was being dumb and I didn't want to actually be dead. So I put myself into a hospital. While I was in the hospital, realized that a paycheck had come into my mailbox. So I, I made myself out of the hospital, drove back to my mailbox, cashed the check and went right back to the casino. That was the next few years after that. Um, You know, it was Mm. 
three or four suicide attempts. Um, uh, I work, work, got a job with a um, very large um, fast food chain, uh, a franchise of it as a general manager training program and ended up taking two of the night deposits to the casino instead of depositing them in the bank because it was a Friday and I knew they wouldn't count it till Monday. And in my head, I knew I could make it back and put it in, mm. put it into the deposit. Because you were just borrowing. You weren't, you weren't actually that's, taking it. In my mind, that's when exactly win, what I was it doing. It won't be a problem. Yeah. Yep. Right. And I, and I knew in my mind I was going to win, even though I knew I wouldn't. Um, and again, ended up turning myself in that Monday to the police, the local police, and for that one, I get to live the rest of my life with a felony. Mm -hmm. um, but even there, again, I was let off easy <laughs> because I had a military background um, and I had had no other offenses to that point that they knew about because they didn't know about my military record. Um, you know, so again, I was let off easy. But then at that point, made the decision that I needed to do something and got myself into the VA's gambling treatment program out in Cleveland. And, and this was in 2007 that I was finally able to get into this program. And that program's still there. And that program's headed up by Dr. Heather Chapman. And she and Dr. Lori Rugel were the ones who encouraged you to come out, right? Correct. In fact, okay. in fact, it was Dr. Rugel who ended up being my primary therapist when I got out there. Wow. Um, Can you get any better than that? I, no, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I got out there and my life changed because mm -hmm. I had just given in at that point. I decided to just surrender and let somebody take care of me and tell me what the heck was going on. And finally, I was front, in front of people who understood what I was going through. Finally, I felt like somebody got it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> I can remember one of my very first group sessions with Dr. Rugel. <laughs> We're sitting in there and, and I said, and I, I don't remember what the conversation was. And I said, you know, I just want to do this right. And if you've met Lori, she's this little tiny woman with this little tiny voice. Oh, yeah. yes. And just that little tiny voice said, and she started the, she, she, she started the sentence with an expletive. I'm not going to repeat here, but uh, <laughs> she's like blank, right? Just be honest. And, and that has stuck with me ever since that day. You know, she's like mm -hmm. the heck with right. Who cares about right? Just be honest. Mm -hmm. And it, it was the start of a, of a journey for me. It really was. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I went through that. I went through the aftercare program there. I felt really healthy coming out of there, but I, I made a mistake after that, which is I lost contact with my recovery. So I was going to GA, I was going to aftercare. And then all of a sudden I had this feeling like, you know, I've got this. And, and that's a mistake. Mm. That's a, that's a big mistake. Um, Common one. Yeah. Not alone there. Yep. Um, anybody else who's listening? Let's <laughs> see <laughs> <laughs> what happens next. <laughs> yeah. Guess what happens next. <laughs> uh, yeah. Guess what happens next is that over the next several years, very slowly and very gradually, it started to creep back in. Um, I, at, during that time, by the way, I had lost contact with my children. I didn't talk to my children for two years, like not one word with them for two years. Wow. Um, and, and very gradually things started to reconnect. I had reconnected with my ex, at least on a conversational level. I, I reestablished contact with my children. Um, I've since remarried, which was back in, uh, 2014, I got married, but 
during all of this time, very gradually, the addictive part of me was rebuilding. And did your, did your second wife know before uh, I, getting together with you that you yes. had had? Okay. Yes, she did. I, I, I told her about that. And, mm -hmm. and I also wrote a book about it. I couldn't hide it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she knew about the book too. Um, but the problem was what she didn't know is what was going on while we were together. And, you know, kind of the re-manifestation of this addiction didn't come in the form of casino gambling or even online gambling. It came in the form of money manipulation. So I had wanted to pay off a bill that I carried with me from before we were together. So I took out a loan to pay off that bill and made a huge mistake. I didn't tell her about that loan. Mm -hmm. So I carried that loan into our marriage and was trying to pay down that loan. And what I, was, what I would do is instead of touching our household money, I would take out other loans to pay off that loan. And then I started taking off credit cards to pay off the loans that I took off to pay off the loans. Meanwhile, I'm using all of my income money to pay our household bills and to run our budget. So all of the money I was using to pay these bills off had to come externally. So basically I got back into that addictive mentality of, well, you know, if I take this loan out, I can find a way to pay it off. Mm, if I do this, I can do this. Just a different type of gamble. Yeah, you weren't really, really what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it actually created a very similar feeling for me in that there was a part of me that really liked walking that edge, mm -hmm. you know, and the excitement of, of uncertainty. Yeah. The secret, you know, I'm, I'm holding the secret. Nobody knows. I'm still going to fix it in my mind. Mm -hmm. My mind's telling me I'm still going to fix this, but you know, at the same time, there was part of me like the adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. um, and that got continually, continually worse over the next few years I even made a gigantic mistake and I, and I went on social media and I found these quote unquote philanthropy people on, on social media that I thought were going to bail me out of my situation by giving me money because I was a desperate guy who needed money, who was a veteran and wanted to use my veteran status to manipulate people to get money from them. And turns out these philanthropists turned out to be not philanthropists and actually took a bunch of money from them. Mm. Oh, um, wow. And I knew it was happening in the back of my mind. I knew it was happening, but the, the addictive part of me, you know, uh, Mr. Hyde sitting back there, tapping me on the shoulder going, no, 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 you're going to get through this. You're going to get through this. You're going to get through this to the point where I again hit the point of, uh, and, and this is, I'll fast forward. Now this is late December, early January of 2020 of 2019, 2020. I, I had a knife I carried around with me that I was fully, that if, if, if my wife had found anything that I had done, I was fully prepared to walk to the back of my property and end my own life. I had an exit plan. Um, I carried the knife with me every day, everywhere I went. I made sure it was sharpened. I made sure it was ready. Um, and then one Friday I sat down on my couch and as I'm sitting on my couch and, and God is my witness, this really happened. I'm I love sitting this. there. I love this. <laughs> and all of a sudden I hear Morgan Freeman's voice in my head from Shawshank Redemption going, get busy living or get busy dying. I kid you not that happened. That is so freaking cool. I had goosebumps when, when I first heard that on your podcast, because I could almost <laughs> hear like Morgan Freeman's voice in my head. That's I actually the best heard it. Ever. I actually heard his voice. That's well, crazy. you know, he could, cool. he could narrate life anyway, but, mm. um, but I heard that voice in my head and I made the decision right then and right there that I chose, that I chose life mm. and that I would choose a, a life in recovery, no matter what that meant for my marriage, no matter what that meant for 
all of the things that, you know, in my life that my job, whatever, I was going to choose life and recovery. So I spent that weekend pretending to be sick, wrapped up in a blanket just so I could prepare myself. And then that Monday, I took myself to a VA, uh, mm-hmm. acute psych, um, told them that I had one, you know, I had thoughts about hurting myself and what was going on. I then called my wife and told her what was going on. And, you know, blindside doesn't begin to cover what happened with her. You know, the, this is this is the evil part of this addiction is, is that it's so easy to hide, you know. Do you have any clue? Like, did she, was she thinking like either maybe you were having an affair or did she notice any sneakiness? Like what was going on with her? There was one tiny indication right near the end in that I was making payments. I, I, I was running all of our bills. I was paying all of our household bills. And that she had gotten called twice from our mortgage company, her mortgage company saying that the payment was a little bit late, late twice. That was the only indication she had at all that something wow. was going on. Wow. Because at that point, I was starting to use household money to pay off my debt. Um, it wasn't for very long. It was probably about two months. But it was enough that she noticed it. And she's very savvy with this stuff. You know, she watches it very closely. So had I let it go any longer, she would have started questioning. But honestly, no. Um, no. And, and she, she is the type of person that probably her biggest core value is be honest with her. I'm, I'm, I'm extremely lucky to still be with her. Extremely lucky. Because that's over her whole life, that's been the one thing that she's insisted on out of people is that they just be honest with her. Mm-hmm. And I was the exact opposite for a couple of years. Um, you know, so that was a very deep cut. Um, you know, it was a very deep cut and it was, it was, it's taken a long time to start that healing process between me and her. Um, but it's happening, thankfully. Um, we're, we're nowhere near where we were quote unquote before all this happened. Um, but you know, things are very, things are very different from what they were on that day. I can tell you that. Um, so yes, that was a hard conversation, but I knew it had to happen. And I knew that I ran a very, very high risk of her leaving me. But I also knew that if I was going to be in recovery, that's the risk I had to take. I had to be willing to take. So I did end up back in the gambling treatment program, um, in February of last year, this time working with Dr. Chapman, who is, uh, by one, a favorite person in the world. <laughs> um, I'm going to put, in fact, I'm going to say she's, she's right there with Dr. Rugel. The two of them are, are even keel in my mind. Um, and got to go through again, five weeks of pretty intensive therapy, but this time it was very different for me because I started to untangle a lot of the junk that was underneath the addiction and started to discover that the addiction in and of itself is, is more of a manifestation of a lot deeper things. So I started to find the veins that were underneath of it and started to uncover them a little bit um, and have since corrected the mistake I made the first time of not staying connected to my recovery. Um, you know, I'm part of an online, online gambling support group, which you guys know all too well, um, mm-hmm. you know, with Jeff. Um, I'm also, I go to GA meetings every week. I have a counselor I meet with once a month. Um, you know, I do the podcast. I am, and I also now work part-time in, uh, in addiction treatment 
and actually got the facility that I work at, which is a drug and alcohol facility to now allow me to do a problem gambling awareness group once a week. So that's awesome. Staying extremely connected to my recovery this time. (laughs) I just want to take a minute to kind of give a little bit of respect to your spouse and other family and loved ones that have gone through this, who often are carrying on themselves this feeling of how come I didn't see it, Mm -hmm. right? I should have known. Mm -hmm. And I talk to people all the time who uh, aren't connected to gambling problem gambling, you know, they, they don't struggle with it. They're, they're not a family member of, et cetera, who, who kind of say, well, I can spot it. Right. Mm-hmm. I can, I can tell mm-hmm. when I see it. Right. Um, and I'm like, well, what if I, I'm thinking, what if I told you right now it was your grandmother or it was your spouse, right? Like that's how blindsided right. people all over the country are every day. Yeah when they find out someone that they love is dealing with this. And and like Dave, like you just said, it is easy to Mm -hmm. hide Mm -hmm. in any addiction by its nature does anything it can to survive, which includes hiding because if they found out they might intervene. Right. Right. And so with gambling, there's no, you know, slurred speech, there's no smell, there's no track marks. It's very easy, easy to hide. Um, and it's it, also yeah. a testament to why this is not just a bad habit, right? Mm-hmm. If it mm-hmm. was a bad habit, that kind of extreme change in, in uh, a person pushing their, their boundaries and what they would have thought that they would do, it doesn't happen if it's just a bad habit. Okay, that's why this is something much more serious than that and why um, it needs to get more attention and people in the military getting more education to get more help to people to have more providers trained in this so that people aren't struggling for years and years and years or uh, left floundering on their own dealing with it until it's to the point of a crime has been committed. Yeah. And, and think about this for a second. You just hit on something pretty important. It's, it's already tough enough for military families to deal with moving every couple of years, deployments, um, you know, all of the things that go along with military life mm-hmm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. Now you throw away, you throw in there the lies and the deceptions and the, all of the things that go along with a gambling addiction. And my God, you, you talk about dropping a bomb on somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, there has to be more education, not only for service members, but for service members' families. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. How are your, your kids doing? And, and what's, what was that like when you kind of came clean with them with this, uh, with all of the sort of uh, moving around of, of money, so to speak, this latest time? They, they, my kids are actually, we have, we actually have a very good relationship now. My daughter actually, moved she had lived living in South Carolina and actually moved up here to Pennsylvania um, two years ago with her husband to be with us and then this relapse happened and she was not a happy camper um, but she was very upfront about that but we started healing fairly quickly because we opened one of the things I did this time that I didn't do the first time I fell into addiction is I sat and I looked all of my family members in the eye and I told them what I did um, that honestly opened the door to recovery for me. 
because if I hadn't, I would have carried that with me. And I don't think I would have gotten the same level of recovery I allowed myself to get by doing it. My daughter and I have healed very well. And in fact, uh, June 8th of last year, she gave birth to my first grandchild. Um, yes, they, live, they live five minutes down the road and I get to see her often. Mm. We have a very good relationship. Um, my son is a senior in college down in South Carolina and he and I, we FaceTime once a week at least um, to talk with each other. He has said to me, he forgives me. Um, she has said to me, she forgives me. And we're moving forward. Um, mm. We have very good relationships now. We have very good relationships. Um, they did ask questions about the time when they were younger and about the things that went on when they were younger. And, and I'm glad they did. I'm glad they wanted to know more. Mm -hmm. You know, it was important that we tried to fill in that gap as much as possible because they didn't have their father through some of their most impressionable years. And, you know, I still, part of me still mourns that to this day. Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, just, I, I know Tana and I are both in, so many people are so grateful that you did choose to get busy living and not get busy dying. And you might've missed those times in the past, mm -hmm. but you're not going to miss any more in the future. That's right. When I found out my daughter was pregnant and I, and she, when I had gone to treatment last year, I said, my legacy, I said, this child is going to be my legacy. In other words, she's going to be the first person in my family to just know me as her grandfather, to not know me as the guy who gambled, to not know me as the guy who lied, to just know me as who I am. Um, with, which by the way is Grampy. That's my official name. That's, is Grampy, so. so sweet. <laughs> and you know, that's the other thing, Dave, is, is that I do hope that you give yourself grace around that. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I've heard about your childhood. You had a very, very difficult childhood, probably more difficult than, than most. I, I mean, definitely more difficult than most, even, traumatic, uh, those who have suffered a lot of trauma. Um, and so I, I do hope that you give yourself grace. You not only were a better father than your father and your stepfather, but you're also better. Um, now you're, you have this wonderful opportunity to be grampy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I think one of the things that's helping me with that, and I'm glad you brought that up, Julie. And it's funny, actually, it's something I heard earlier today, uh, from you, Tana, and the group you were with is, 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 I've had the opportunity over the past year and almost a half now to begin to go back and kind of sit with some of the things that some of the traumatic things that did happen to me when I was younger and kind of develop a different perspective on those, those events. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not wiping them clean. They're not going away. Um, but they're also not, dragging my life because I'm going back and I'm allowing myself to reprocess it in a different way. So, you know, that's so important for me with my children and with my, my, my granddaughter, because it changes the way that I think about being a parent. It changes the way I think about being a grandparent. I can be a good parent. I can be a good grandparent. I'm not destined, you know, to relive what my father or what my stepfather did. I, I'm not. So, and it's good to know that it's good to feel that. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to those who are uh, active duty members right now in the military who may be going overseas? What, what are something that you would suggest for them, one, and two, for family members? Um, for active duty service members going overseas, pay attention. 
pay attention to what it feels like, pay attention to what you're going through. Um, and this is good. This is hard for military service members because of the way that we are trained. Say something, say something. If things aren't going right, say something, if it's uncomfortable, say something, if it doesn't feel right, because that's the, that's the switch that can get flipped. Who would they say it to? Uh, find a counselor, find a chaplain, find a loved one, just talk about it, just get it out. Um, and, and again, it's, it's one of the, it's, it's a very difficult topic to breach for military service members talking about feeling uncomfortable because we're not trained to do that, mm -hmm. but it's so important because if you start running off and you start getting involved in whether it's alcohol, whether it's gambling, whatever it happens to be, it's Gaming. so easy to get sucked into it. It's so mm -hmm. easy um, because it's there. Um, even in the field, you're out in the field and you know, you're in a field exercise or you're on a deployment and there's a lot of downtime, yeah. you know, there's a lot of downtime. So things happen like card games and, you know, there's betting that goes on during downtime as well, or what they would call opportunity time, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it, it's being careful about it, but it's also easy to get sucked in because of peer pressure. And because you have a group of guys that are out there saying, Hey, we're all going over to the slot room tonight. Come with us. So sometimes it's hard to avoid, but it's important to know, you know, if you, if you know you have an addictive personality, avoid those places like as best you possibly can. If you don't know, and you're noticing that you're going more and more, find somebody and say something, you know, find a professional, even if they don't understand what you're going through, at least getting it out might help before it gets, before it progresses to the point that I went through, you know, yeah. I allowed it to reach a point where I, I, I call it the point of no return for me. So, well, and maybe you can share your journey with this, but I'm thinking, you know, how does a person who has been trained to compartmentalize learn to ask for help? You just asked, <laughs> that's the question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're cracking the armor. You, you're asking somebody to crack the armor that they've been told to put on. Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing. And their life is dependent on it. Them right. putting that on in some instances. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So we, we put men and women into a position where they almost have to be like this, but then we tell them if something's going wrong, say something, you know, but they're not taught how to say something. Right. They're not only not, they're not only not taught how to say something, but the other part of them is, is teaching them not to say anything, put it away, put it away, put it away. We got a mission to, to, to accomplish, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's very, it's almost an impossible situation and there has to be some middle ground. There has to be a balance somewhere, you know, but yet it's, it's the U S military. And, and of course, military across the world. I, I, one of my episodes in the podcast, I talked to a service member from the UK who basically struggled with the same issues. Mm. You know, it's not just here, mm -hmm. you know, we have a mission to accomplish. And when you have a mission to accomplish, especially as tough a mission as the men and women who serve in the armed forces have, there's a level of giving up yourself that has to take place in order to do that mission. It, it, it stinks, but it, it, it's, it almost has to be that way. So 
where most of the work really is done is once these people transition out of the military and become veterans, that's where most of the work, there should be a better process when they reach the end of their careers of processing them back into the civilian world and saying, here's the help that's available to you. And this is what you need to do. You know, if you can't do it while they're active duty, and I would hope there's a way to do it while they're active duty, but if you can't at least transition better, because a lot of times it's okay, let me have your ID card. Okay. Don't come back on the base. Your ID card's gone. See you later. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, that really short transition time and, and that whole mental health piece that mm -hmm. goes along with that. Mm -hmm. Got a lot of work to do. What does mental health services currently look like for active military? Do they have access to mental health counselors, U.S. and overseas bases? Are yes. they required to see them at any point? The only time there's a requirement is when it affects mission readiness. When the unit commander notices that there's a problem, that's when a, at least in my experience, that's when a service member will be mandated to go see. And yes, there are social workers, there are um, psychologists, there are counselors, pretty much on any base, you'll find them. Mm -hmm. um, but usually the soldier sailor, or the airman Marine is not going to go in front of them until the unit says things are getting messed up. I want you to go see this person because it's affecting mission readiness. So they're not really used in prevention in any way. If they are, it's on a small scale. Gotcha. See, I'm asking this because in my mind, I'm thinking if you're sending a group of what, primarily 18 to 20 something year old, older about right. uh, people into situations that are, you know, potentially life threatening, et cetera, kinds of military situations. In my mind, I'm thinking, get these people weekly one-on-ones with a therapist standard, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it's just yeah. a check-in, right? Like normalize, this is part of our mental readiness maintenance, right? Like in my mind, that's where it goes. Um, I'd love to see that, but. <laughs> well, and let, let me let me just say this real quick. And I do want to just make sure I qualify this by saying, you know, I, I got out of the military in 2005. So we're talking about almost 16 years since I was active duty. So I don't know if there have been major changes, but at least what I hear from who I talk to, it's not a ton different. Yeah. Um, but I can't say that from firsthand experience because I've been separated for 16 years. So I want to make sure I clearly say that. I don't want to, right. you know, I only know from what I've experienced and from people that I've spoken to. And what about support? So there's, there are family resources in the branches as well for veterans uh, what is there anything that we are aware of as far as readiness to address gambling among those areas? No, mm. no, again, not that I'm aware. Mm. Um, there may be services that will refer to gamblers anonymous. I was never exposed to it. Um, mm. So I, I, I don't know. Uh, but as far as I know, no, there's not. So Rob has a question for you. He asks, is there a stigma professionally that is at risk when you ask for help, something you don't want in your file? What a brilliant question. Thanks, Rob. And 100% yes. The answer is yes. There's a hesitancy to ask for help because then you're on the radar. Mm -hmm. um, and once you get on the radar, 
that can be bad for a career. Mm-hmm. So, so for promotions, for example. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. If you admit to a weakness that could open the door for not getting promoted when you want to, it could open the door for, you know, a number of different things, disciplinary action, depending on what's going on. Um, you know, so if I go to somebody and say, listen, I, I have, I think I have a gambling problem. This is what I've done. You do that. And I'm going to say this with the mentality that I would have had when I was wearing a uniform, you do that at great risk. When mm-hmm. I admitted what I had done, I did, I did it knowing I was doing it at great risk to my own career. Wow. And that I think answers the question. How do you teach people train to compartmentalize, to ask for help? Mm-hmm you've got to eliminate that risk or else it won't happen. Right. There needs to be more Mm -hmm. intervention from an educational standpoint. We need to Mm -hmm. educate um, officers and upper enlisted um, on the fact that this is treatable on the fact that, that this is a disease on the fact that there are things that we can say, you know, if you're in a leadership position, there are things you can say to subordinates to help guide them through it and get them to help without it affecting the career or mission readiness. Right. You know, that's where I think, in in my opinion, that's where the education starts is with, you know, senior leadership. That's where it all starts. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where I think having something where mental health services are treated as um, more like a health exam, right? They're regular. Yeah. Yeah. They're regular. There's no stigma. They're required for everybody. You know, it's just part of overall health. I don't know what interval would be appropriate or anything, right? But um, treating it as such where this is a normal thing. Everybody goes to see the psychiatrist and it's not something that if you see the psychiatrist, now you have some extra thing in your file you don't want people to see. No, everybody sees the psychiatrist. So it's no big deal that you went and talked about stuff because you're supposed to, everybody does all the way up. Right. Right. Yeah, that, that would be, honestly, that would be a rocky transition. But once the transition takes place and you've kind of normalized it happening, I, and again, I can speak from my own experience. I, I'd be like, okay, it's, it's time for my annual visit, you know, just like I would do a regular medical checkup or whatever. You know, it's time for my screening. So, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your work, for really being an advocate out there. I, you, you're one of few who are really out there. I mean, you have a podcast, you've got Twitter, you've written up books, you are so far like, this is me, I'm Dave, I'm a veteran, I'm recovering from a gambling disorder. How wonderful is that to lead the way in this work? Mm-hmm. How many lives maybe you don't even know that you've touched? And, and I know you touch a lot like directly and people who DM you on Twitter and things like that and, and connect with you, but how many other lives may you be changing who are listening quietly in their car? Mm-hmm. You know, just thank you so much, Dave. Well, from your yeah. mouth to God's ears, Julie, cause I'll say two things. Number one, I'm grateful to be able to do it. And number two, I don't think I'm doing near enough. Mm-hmm. So thank you. I appreciate your words. Well, we appreciate you. And if I can pivot, <laughs> this is a really nice segue. It's going to be really smooth. I'm going to pivot to pierogies which are a Western PA, you're in, you're in Western PA, right? 
Actually, East, I'm in Eastern PA, but oh, believe me, Eastern, I, I know oh, what pierogies are. So believe you're in cheesesteak territory then. Yeah, but I, I'm kind of transitional. I'm closer to the middle. So if you had to choose and you're in the, you're in the middle of the state and you had to mm -hmm. choose pierogies or cheesesteak, what, what are you going to do? Cheesesteak hand down, hands down. And which cheesesteak would you go with? Um, going with, I'm going with a whiz without, um, no mushrooms. Keep the mushrooms off. Um, got to be on an Amoroso roll um, with cheese whiz. Got to have cheese whiz on it. Oh, man. I, I got to say, you are a true, truly an Eastern PA guy then because the cheese whiz is what makes uh, what makes you guys legit. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Tana's just kind of, Tana looks like she's got a side eye. What, what's going on there, Tana? Oh, nothing. I just I'm I'm kind of just fan clubbing on Dave Yeager. Yes, <laughs> I just just a lot of a lot of respect for you. And I was kind of just thinking, man, all of the places the system totally missed an opportunity. Mm. You know, yeah. in his in his journey. Yes, it's like there were so many like balls dropped um, where things could have happened uh, better earlier for you. You know. Um, and it's to your credit that you didn't give up on you. Mm. And, and that, yeah, what I was going to say, first of all, thanks. And given all that, and I can, you know, I can sit back and I can reflect all that. All I have to say is I'm in a very good place right now. And that's what matters. I feel like it's my responsibility and I do it with joy. Don't get me wrong. I take this responsibility on with joy. It's my responsibility to tell my story, to let people know there's help, um, to talk to, if they decide to talk to me, the industry and tell them the effects that it has on us, um, you know, to just be a voice for people who may not want to be a voice or may not know they have a voice. I mean, that's what I want. I, I just mm -hmm. want to be part of the solution. That's, you that's do that all in I want to you, you do that in such a positive way, Dave, that your message really resonates with people. And, and I know Tana was talking about like lost opportunities and things like that, but how many, I mean, not, but because this is your life, right. But how many more opportunities are you enabling others to have with right. your voice, with mm -hmm. your honesty? Uh, and, you know, thank you for even being in the space where you're saying, Hey, we need to have these groups every week with, with my clients or with my, you know, the folks that are, are coming in. We need so many more people like you with uh, service members and veterans because you you all are a completely different kind of population. Mm -hmm. The toughest nuts to crack. You have your own languages. You have your own just everything uh, culturally. And so if there are other people out there listening who are service members, who are veterans, who may be interested in getting into mental health or those who are family members of service members mm -hmm. and veterans who are interested in getting into this work. We need you. We, we really do. And if you're willing to share your stories, reach out to me. I would love to have you on the fall in podcast. Remember your recovery comes first though. Recovery comes first, but if you have a willingness to, to tell your story and share it and get it out there and help others with it, just, just reach out. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for spending this hour with us. We, we so much appreciate you and I can't wait to run into you again. You know, it's an honor that you guys had me on. I really, really, really appreciate it. I can't tell you, I'm not, I'm so thankful. The honors truly ours. Well, thanks so much everyone for listening to this 
uh, podcast episode with the great Dave Yeager. If you want to find Dave on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle, Dave? It's at Fall In Podcast. Um, I can also be reached at fallinpodcast at gmail.com. Excellent. And uh, Fall In Podcast is the name, and it's convenient to know that for Dave's podcast. So head over there. We'll put it in the show notes as well. Thanks again, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So Dave, uh-huh. what is the trick when you need to fix a cassette tape and it's stuck? What do you do? Put a pencil in it. <laughs> Case closed. Oh because I didn't like sticking my finger in to twist them. And they're like, yeah, but that that's, that's old as the Hills. That's just common sense. Just throw a pencil in there and spin it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You can find us on the ECPG website at evergreencpg.org, also on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And in Oregon, you can find us at the OCPG website at oregoncpg.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And please know that if you or a loved one is seeking help with problems caused by gambling, you are not alone. Help is available. And here's where we're going to give you some resources. If you are in Washington, you can call the Washington Problem Gambling Helpline 24-7. Call or text 1-800-547-6133. Or you can chat through our website, evergreencpg.org on your computer, phone, or tablet. And if you're in Oregon, you can contact the Oregon Problem Gambling Helpline 24-7 by calling 1-877-MY-LIMIT. That's 1-877-695-4648. Or you can head to Oregon Problem Gambling Resource website at opgr.org. There you can get resources, chat, and text. Help is available for the person struggling with gambling as well as anyone affected by gambling. Join us next episode and stay Stay connected. connected.